Hey everybody, Payments Professor here, and I want to welcome you to the Payments Podium. Today, we're going to be talking about the exciting world of regulations. You know, that topic that nobody really likes to talk about, but it's important and it needs to be there. But to get a really fun angle on it, we're not going to be talking about regulations in the U.S., well, maybe a little. We're going to be talking about what we're seeing as far as regulations over on the, let's call it the other side of the pond, because I want to welcome Paul Tamala. He is here to be able to guide us through, and, and I, I think, you know, Paul, first thing I need you to do is give a quick introduction of who you are, but the way I like to do that is, can you tell us how you got started in the world of electronic payments? I mean, you know, not being from the U.S., I, I hear how people get started here, and it's usually by accident. Nobody wants to purposely be in payments. It's by accident. So being over in the U.K., how did you get your start in payments? Well, it's kind of crazy, really. I was a chemist, you know, so what's that got to do with payments? And I ended up um, doing IT work as, as a chemist, and the IT people said, hey, come and do this, come and do payroll with us. And like I needed to do this payroll routines and then I had to check them and I had to take a payroll file on an eight inch diskette. Yes, an eight inch diskette. There'll people here who are going, what's he talking about? But I had to take a eight inch diskette with payroll data up to BACS, which is like Natcha here. Okay. And I had to take the diskette, present it to them. They had to say, yeah, it was good or not. I had to do it three times because I screwed up the first two. But there you go. That's how I got into payments. Okay. I, again, you, you were a chemist that was working in IT that suddenly got asked to do payroll. And I have jokingly said a lot of times the person who's working in ACH was the person who was able to figure it out. And everybody said, it's their job now. Just let them have it. <laughs> well, that's so true. That's so true. Yeah, I got to agree with that one. We are a unique bunch no matter where we go in the world. I, and I got to say, though, too, one of the important things about payments is no matter where we go in the world, it is the having of the regulations. There's a purpose behind the regulations. That, you know, overall, they keep us all safe. They protect the account holders. They protect the actual structures, the infrastructures, the networks, the systems that are out there. So there is a purpose for them. Now, I know when it comes to like the architecture of what's happening in the world of of, of electronic payments over here, what we're looking at is our governing bodies. What about the architecture over there? Because I know you've mentioned to me before new payments architecture. What, what in the world is that? Okay, so I think it's fair to, to set the scene a little bit. And America has a very different regulatory um, ecosystem. So it's more technical. It's more about um, making sure things work, that the rule books adhere to, and what have you. That's not quite so true outside of the US. So, for instance, in the UK and in Europe, for that matter, we have interventionalist regulators. And they come in and go, guys, that's great, but for the, for the good of our society, I want you to do this, this, and this. And so it's now being a, a sort of political debate, but then being forced on... This is the right thing for our society. So the NPA, um, you know, we had, um, we had faster payments. Um, and we did that in 2006 because the government said, hey, you know how long it takes to clear a check here? It's five days. Five days and 10 days if you weren't one of the core banks. And, it, and that was based on literally how fast a, a horse could get from the north of England to London. That's, that's 
the rules. That's why it was five days, right? So they then said, well, you know, this isn't kind of good enough. Can we make it better? And they said, okay, well, we'll get our brains together and think about it. And said, well, either you think about it as a banking and payments ecosystem, or we'll kind of tell you what to do. So wait, wait, wait. You mean they, they actually said you guys can go figure this out, or we're going to just jump in and tell you what you got to do? Yeah, that's the. And and I, I give you two examples of this. So in 2006, this happened. In 2008, we had what we now call faster payments, immediate payments. And really, the UK Treasury said, guys, this isn't good enough. You fix it, or we fix it. And I'll ask the regulator, who's essentially a governmental body at the end of the day, to go and sort that out. And so um, sometime in 2007, we decided that, actually, you know what? We could do this in real time. And so we, as payments professionals and banks and processors and all those good things, said, yeah, we can do it. And we came out in 2008, and we, and we did what is now called faster payments. And then... We, you know, we I got to get this timeline because you're blowing my mind. You're yeah. saying in 2006, you're getting told checks aren't processing fast enough because the, the horse just can't get from one into another fast enough. And then by 2008, you already got real-time payments and you did that on your own? Yeah, so effectively, um, you know, the effect of what the Treasury asked was that the ecosystem around payments got together and came up with its own proposal, which it deemed quite rightly that we'd work out how to do it. And so we did. Here's our proposal. Yeah, that works. Okay, go do it. And then that became the regulation, and that's what came as you know, faster payments. And I'll give you another example, because it's, it's actually a twofer or whatever you know, the right phrase is. After having gone through this process, um, in 2015, the government kind of came back and knocked on the door and said, you know, I think there are things that payments could do to help the UK economy, help our citizens. What I'd like you to do is to go away and set up an independent group and go and understand all the detriments of UK society and how payments could help fix them. And so, you know, there was a, there was a group uh, which I was part of called the, the Payments, excuse me, the Payments Strategy Forum. And it produced a document in 2016 and said, these are all the detriments of society. These are, for, for whatever reason, direct debits don't necessarily help the lowest paid in, in the UK. So let's try and fix them. As a result of that document, one of the proposals was to thoroughly modernize the UK payments infrastructure. And then we came out with the new payments architecture, which is not just an architecture, it's the whole process by which we would do payments throughout the UK and how each of the stakeholders, whether it was the government, payroll firm, um, a citizen, could actually get benefit from having a updated version of how the UK ran its payment systems. Okay, so what really happened here is the government saw opportunity and said, let's go find ways that we can improve people's lives for this. Because I mean, I'm telling you, people in the US are going, wait, what? Uh, they, yeah. they actually intervened and wanted to make it better. And then you guys came together and found ways of where faster payments could actually enhance lives? 
Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of... Um, and the reason I came here, because it is so diametrically opposed, I think, to the way that it would, you know, may happen in the US. But the idea, you know, is, yeah, you know, payments is kind of murky. Nobody really understands how they work unless you're underneath the cover and then you're in the weeds. And you don't necessarily see the things that it trips people up on. So I'll give you an example, small example. Um, if you're a zero hours worker or you are, you know, um, very, very low paid, then you typically won't sign up for a direct debit, a regular payment stream paying a utility bill, a gas bill or a phone bill. Well, okay, say I've got a mobile phone and my mobile phone, um, the best way to get the best deal about, out of a, you know, uh, mobile phone carrier is to sign up for a contract because if you only go pay as you go you know monthly I'll put 10 pounds in manually then actually you don't get a very good rate so if you unwind it what actually happens is if you can afford a direct debit or, or you know regular monthly payment coming out of your bank account you can get better contracts you can get cheaper rates for your water you get cheaper rates for your gas electricity what have you or your phone bill Ah, so that says in the society that we have, you have to be rich to get the better deals. So wouldn't it be a good idea if that wasn't the case? Because most people who, do, who have enough money to be able to sign up to these direct debits do not think about the alternative use case. So one of the direct debits, one of the um, detriments is we shouldn't penalize the people that are lowly paid or have not got a definitive um, uh, work, st uh, work stream to be able to get money coming in so that they can afford, de afford to get direct debits. We have to have a different way of thinking about it. And that's one of the fixes, that we have real-time payments that don't get charged through direct debits. Okay, because now you're making me think of something right away. And one of those things is, I know in a lot of areas of loans right now, like my son just bought a car and getting it, he's like, dad, if I sign up and I, I get direct uh, deposit, you know, they actually take, not deposit, debit, actually take the money right out of my account. They said they'll drop my interest rate by half a percent. He's like, should I do that? And I'm like, yes, you should do that. Do you realize what that half a percent equals in money? He's like, no. And I, you know, and helped and educated him on it. He's like, yeah, but dad, you know, you know, he waits tables. He's like, I'm not always sure I'm going to have the money in there. I was like, make sure you have the money in there. So is that the same type of situation it's that exactly you're talking about? It's exactly the same. And the idea of the, of the, of the, of the PSF was to write through what are, what are these detriments now? Clearly, some of them you can't just fix with payments, but they are aligned to payments. But the idea was then you would put forward a platform that said, hey, this is how we would like our society to move forward. And of course, the government more or less accepted that, not as fast as people would like, truth be known. Uh, but, you know, this year we have NPA now in play and it will be starting to address all of the detriments that was um, highlighted by this report. So you have this kind of like, you know, if you don't, I will approach, but effectively you get to the right place. And of course the government always wins in the end. So everyone knew if we didn't do it, then, you know, they'd write it. And, you know, let's be honest, how good would a government be at writing a rule book for payments? You know, 
it, I'm still though stuck on the two years of getting it done. Cause like recently I did a, a podcast talking about the process here in the U S and it is actually a great process. I do believe that, but it takes forever because we get commentary from organizations, every financial institution, different points of view. And by the time we're done getting commentary, more than two years has passed. And then, you know, we say, well, here's what's going to happen. And it will happen in two more years. So it's a very slow, tedious process. You guys were able to do that, come back later, and then further identify ways that it would help improve things. And if I'm right too, you eventually took your faster payments from just being in the UK to being other countries as well, right? Yeah. So basically, you know, and I go back to the fact that, you know, we weren't super clever. We had loads of other issues. I'll go back to the five-day clearing thing, right, in case, in case you, you misconstrue. But effectively, the model of what faster payments is, the same model that's deployed everywhere around the world, slightly more modernized, but it's effectively the same. And so whether it's, you know, India, whether it's TCH over in, over, over in the U.S., um, it, you know, it's, a, it's effectively the same model. It's a very simple um, payment rail, you press the button, it's committed, it's done, thanks very much. Which of course isn't the way that the rest of the payment rails work. So it's pretty much taken that model and in nearly every country, I think it's 65% of all the countries in the world now either have a payments plan, a immediate payments plan in place or within the next two years will. Um, so, you know, by volume, of people, I think it's 80% of all the people in the world get access to an immediate payment plan. So, you know, it's kind of a cool thing. Um, but, you know, if you switch gears on it a little bit, you know, it's, it's kind of the same in Europe. You know, whereas, you know, the regulator in Europe has a very much more interventionist road. It will be hands-on. It will say, you know, that, you know, you can charge these fees. You will charge these fees. You can't charge more. And it will say things like, um, uh, we, will, we will put in place uh, faster payments or real-time payments throughout the whole of Europe, and that has to be completed in the next 18 months. That's kind of it. Okay, get on with it. Now, was the due diligence? Did they talk to people? Yes, but in the end of the day, they made the decision, they took it through Parliament, and they said, we think this is good for our society. Put it in play. And so you have a different approach of being interventionist in what the regulator and the government hopes are the best thing for society in that country, whether it's Europe or the UK case that I, that I, that I mentioned. And they have... Um, you know, these processes in Europe can take a lot longer. So if it makes you feel better, you know, the, the process of going through a regulatory body in Europe will be, hey, here's my notes, here's what I think, I'll put it out, um, and you can come back to me over the next year or so, nine months, and tell me what you think of it. We'll then amend it. I will come back in 18 months' time and I will create a draft regulatory document like PSD2 and, of course, now you know, PSD3. And then from that, we will then spend the next six months or so arguing about what should be in it. Then we take it to government and then the government says, yeah, yeah, but can we just change this bit, just change that bit? 
and eventually it gets through. But once that stage is through, there's then a timeline, typically 18 months to two years that says, hey guys, that's it. You, you know, you've had, your, you've had your words, you've had your arguments, you don't like it, I'm sorry, this is it, go. And so, you know, in Europe, it can take seven years to go from nothing to completion. But the direction is that of not exactly a political statement, but it's a statement based upon what is deemed as the right thing for Europe in that case, or UK in the case that I mentioned. And, and you know, then you just get on with making the changes happen, which is not quite the way it works in the US, right? Yeah, well, you know, and it's interesting, the way you just explained it made me realize that there's some similarities in that, except our government's not really that heavily involved. That's, you know, for changing of federal regulations. And those listening there are going, well, what about Fed now? Yeah, it took a federal regulation for that to, you know, actually happen. But if I look at, like, say, ACH, ACH is a, a self-governed network. And the way it will work, it would be a case of people go to the NACHA saying, this isn't working for us. NACHA then puts out requests for comments that the whole industry gets to reply back. And then they put out a request a proposal for, hey, here's a new rule. Any comments on this? So, you know, you get a second chance. And then there's an actual voting process to determine if this is going to be a new rule or not. And then, very similar to you, we will have like the 18 months to two years. Um, I, 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 wow. So there, there, I do see some of those similarities. And uh, though we also, though, our government just jumps in and just says, do this, you know, and sometimes some of the rules come out of nowhere and don't make a lot of sense. Uh, but Mentioning FedNow and it's coming, you know, we're about to get our faster payments. You guys had your faster payments. You then got together and started making some changes. What were some of the regulatory changes that came about because of having faster payments? You know, some of the things, maybe we didn't expect this, this had to happen. I know one of our concerns is going to be the authorized push payment fraud, though we don't really call it that here, or the money mules taking over and the situations with that. So what were some of the other regulations that happened because of faster payments? I think some of the things are, I mean, the they're all the same, right? You'll have heard of all the terms. And it's, it's like, so, you know, confirmation of payee, request mm -hmm. to pay. You know, confirmation of payee, people think, oh, well, you know, that's not such a big use case. But in terms, you know, once, once that was put in place, the usage of immediate payments just went through the roof. Now, it's also true to, and, you know, I mean, it's like if you had to put in your, you know, your routing code and your account code, or in our case, a sort code and account code. If you have to put those codes in, you have to remember them. You know, I can tell you what mine are, but you know, it's like six characters, eight characters. Oh, what's the chances of me getting that wrong? That's fairly high, you know. So if I say, you know, payments professor, sort code, blah, 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 and it comes back and says, that's another payment professor. No, hold on, just, just hold on a second. That's naughty guy in bad country then or bad person so it comes back and says no you, that's not right do you want to and now people go okay I'm good now I now I feel because one of the critical things here is of course once you press that button it goes from being a um, a, a issue with of of law to be a commercial law question now I could go back and say hey mr. bad guy I just sent you you know a hundred dollars but I didn't mean to. Do you mind sending it back and go, nah, nah, thank you very much. So confirmation of payee was a big confidence boost and that made a, you know, a huge, a huge change. 
Well, um, confirmation of payee is basically having a directory service of some site that's set up that allows it to simplify being able to make the payment through, like, say, a phone number or an email address. But also in that process of entering that information, it provides information back to the sender to say, hey, this is who you're going to be sending to. So I, I could see why that would be a huge benefit. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, you know, just the confidence that it gave to people to use it, you know, was huge. I mean, now in the UK, what's growing 20% compound year on year, the usage. So this is huge, right? And, you know, to be fair, we did get a lot of um, fraud issues. And, you know, I suspect the US will have the same. And I know that's a big fear in the, in, in, in the US. But we overcame them. And some of the things that people might not like, but it is... Um, if something happens now, then the bank will have to refund the payer. So if it screws up and something happens, the bank has to reimburse the payer. So now, yeah, I can see that's not going to go well in the US. No. But the truth, and let's be honest, didn't go well here in the UK either. But the truth of the matter is. Um, if you believe that immediate payments, faster payments is a good thing, then you want to push it. You want to make sure that people feel comfortable in pushing it. Well, here's the right thing to do. Now, what you find, though, is that um, most of the fraud now is socially engineered fraud. So it's not a technical issue anymore. It's not somebody's being really clever. Mostly it's the social engineering of trying to get somebody to do something that they believe is correct and is technically correct it's just they've been engineered to do it and that you know that's hard for a payments guy to try and address because that's a social issue and an educational issue that we need to fix outside. on that note paul here's my thing because i've had people say faster payments equals faster fraud and i tell them i don't agree what I believe happens is there is social engineering. There is the duping, the tricking of the, the account holder into sending the money. And they are told or instructed or asked to do it using the faster payment system when available. But the reality is social engineering happens across other payment channels as well. It does. And I think it's actually very little to do with the underlying payment rail. Um, However, you know, I can tell you when I'm, when I'm trying to pay somebody now, um, my bank won't make it really awkward, but it has checks and said, are you sure? Could it be this? Are you sure? Now, of course, that works two ways. And in the past, it was deemed as a potential way that the bank could say, ah, it wasn't us. It was, it was you. You pressed the button that says, I take all the risk. And the UK regulators turn around and say, mm, no, 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 no. They can press the button that says, but and the, the bank now has to prove that they fraudulently did something wrong. And of course, they're not going to do that if it's 50 bucks or 100 bucks. They're just going to let it go through, right? So what you have is a series of comeback that puts the onus back on the bank and by default, if something goes wrong, then the payer, the citizen, will be reimbursed automatically. And the idea, the big idea behind it is this will get more people to adopt immediate payments. And that, will, that is a good thing for our society to try and do.
Okay, well, as a control, I'm telling people, here's the thing. I don't believe that necessarily you give it to everybody, or if you do give it to them, give them velocity limits, give them total limits too, and what they can send, you know, referred to a lot of times as risk appetite. What are you willing to take as a potential loss with somebody? And that's what you give to them. Now, some people argue back, well, that limits your use cases. But I also believe that while you build up your database of information so that you can have more fraud protections, that's the way to be able to go. And from what I'm hearing, if we were to do something like that in the U.S., we will still see growth over time. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, if you're a, if you're a citizen and the use cases around you as an individual, are you going to be buying a house with immediate payments? Yeah, probably not, right? You know, I mean, it doesn't ring true. You, you know, yeah, if we want to do an RTGS or a wire, we know how to do it. Yes, it's going to cost us 100 bucks or whatever that, you know, it's going to cost us. But you're probably not going to do it with immediate payments. So the use cases tend to be, you know, a lot smaller. Now, if, and, and therefore this whole idea of the pay uh, being, you know, recompensed is more reasonable than it may sound, you know, uh, you know, our first view. But if I'm a corporate, you know, I'm paying, what, a couple of percent um, to be mooning around if I'm doing, you know, if I'm doing um, a wire and, what, 35 bucks, something like that. Or I'm sending an immediate payment, which is, oh, to all intents and purposes, free or neo-free. Uh -huh. Okay, so I've just made myself 35 bucks if I'm the corporate. Now, you could argue it separately, but I think there's a separate case that says, well, you know, hold on, if I want to white glove this and I want to make sure that everything's right, then I, I can send it. But least we forget the mean of all the, all the wires, all the uh, RTGS payments around the world is about 5,000 pounds, dollars, euros. This is not an, a use case that really requires RTGS or even ACH. So it, you know, it probably could and should be sent as an immediate payment. And there's also a pressure on the corporates to be doing the right thing by their suppliers. Right. I could send it to you in a couple of days time, three days time, or I could just do it now. So I think the use cases are very different. And if you split them between corporates, it's more about fees and immediacy. And if it's about individuals, it's, you know, citizens, it's probably a lower volume, uh, excuse me, a lower value. And yeah, it's not unreasonable um, to get that accepted in the community to have the payer be recompensed. It's not going to be a lot of money. I just want to make sure I heard right and that listeners heard right too. The reality then is that with faster payments, there are use cases that are consumer specific that are probably lower dollar. But there are use cases that are corporate specific that can be the higher dollar transactions and can both are situations that can work effectively, even though they're totally different across the same faster system. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the NPA is likely to have three, three different types of immediate payments. I know this sounds a little bit crazy. But the first one that comes out and is effectively out later this year is a replacement and it's an ISO digital real-time payments. So the old one was based upon card protocols, right? So now this is completely modern digital stuff. So it'll be a replacement. 
it'll be like for like. The second one will look very much like same day ACH, but the same fees will apply. So if I put the faster payment in or the immediate payment in, I know that it will be paid during the day. And the same rules, I press the button, it's, you know, it's guaranteed. But it allows the processor, pay.uk and Vocalink or MasterCard Vocalink, to actually not get into peaks and troughs. So now if you think about it from a government point of view and it's sending out all its benefit statements, it may be sending literally millions of these things. It says, hey, just send them out during the day, it's fine. Okay, so it feels a little bit more like same day ACH, but it's the same process. It's more about, you know, making sure that the, there is not a bottleneck in, in, in the system. And the third one which will come out um, is effectively immediate, immediate payments. So this is not now one, two seconds. This is I'm standing in a store and I press the button, it's done. You know, flick, it's done. And the idea behind this is effectively, why do I need to have a card inside of my Google phone or my Apple phone or even a card? Why can't I just send it over in media payment rails? Well, okay, if I have the rail that is um, pre-checked, pre-authorized, and I'm going into you know, um, Walmarts or something, then they're gonna be pre-authorized. Why don't I just do that? Now that saves, the merchant, two and a half, three percent, you know? So there is use cases that we will bring that will say, that will look an awful look like cards, but be committed at the point of interaction, as it's called, and it will be on the immediate um, rails and there'll be lower uh, fees. And you could imagine that people like Google and Apple will take out the card bit and put in the immediate payment rails. And, okay, here you go, done. And nobody else will know. But the merchant will save two, three percent. All right, we, we, we started off on regulatory. We're running out of time now because here we are, we're jumping around to getting into where massive use cases, I just got to say, and card replacement. There's some people are probably out there going, let him keep talking, but I got to cut us off for today. Uh, uh, Paul, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this information. For those of you out there listening, if you want to get a hold of Paul, you can email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. I can put you in contact with him. He's also out there on LinkedIn, so you can find him on LinkedIn if you want to get into contact with him. He's got a podcast that's getting started here soon, too. You're going to be hearing more about from the Payments Professor. That's going to be educating on the history of payments, and it's some really good stuff that's coming forward. Now, the rest of you out there listening, if there is a topic or there's a speaker that you think should be on the payments podium and you want me to give them a chance to take the podium to share with us what they know or to share on a specific topic, email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. I'll do my best to get them on the podcast and to give them a chance to be able to share their views. Other than that, folks, for today, I got to say, class dismissed. <laughs>